It's 7.30 a.m. on a Monday in late October. I rub the sleep dust out of my eyes, grab my hard hat and safety glasses, and hop into a monster SUV with Mark Mariano. The sun is still behind the Rockies, so it's that sweet spot for seeing birds at the Berkeley Pit. Okay, so we're headed down to the ramp at the Berkeley Pit? To the bird shack. The bird shack. Yep. The Berkeley Pit is the old open pit copper mine on the outskirts of Butte, Montana, where I live. It was abandoned in the 1980s and allowed to flood with groundwater. But since it was dug out of a mountain made of highly mineralized rock, the water in it is super acidic, around the pH of orange juice, and chock full of chemicals and heavy metals, like copper, zinc, cadmium, lead, arsenic, you get the idea. Which makes the Berkeley Pit a giant, mile-by-mile-and-a-half toxic lake. Access is strictly prohibited, unless you're tagging along with someone like Mariano, the pit's first ever bird protection specialist, restoration ecologist. I don't know. You can call me whenever you want. We drive up to the pit's edge and park in front of his official headquarters, a.k.a. the bird shack. It looks like a tiny house. (laughs) Posters of waterfowl and migration forecasts cover the walls, and binoculars are everywhere. If you look around in here, the, the poster, it kind of looks like an, a nature center. Um, it's hard to believe, but back when the Berkeley was still an active mine, this was the dispatch center for all of the haul trucks. But it was totally reincarnated after an avian disaster struck. In 2016, thousands of migrating snow geese got caught in a storm, needed a rest stop, landed on the pit, drank its poisonous water, and died. The whole debacle forced the companies in charge to come up with a better game plan for protecting waterfowl. They've spent more than half a million dollars on the latest bird-scaring technologies, like the sirens, lasers, drones, and air cannon. Mariano says those get a lot of attention, but his secret weapon is stashed inside the bird shack. He grabs something bulky from the corner, steps to the edge of the abyss, and sets up a tripod and spotting scope. So really, the soul of the program, everyone knows about all the fun, the big V-rads and all the lasers and all the cool stuff, but the, the heart of it all is, is the science-based observation and monitoring and then hazing, precision hazing based on that. Right. So the biggest tool in the box is not all the crazy stuff in the newspaper. It's actually the Swarovski scope right here. All those other deterrents are supposed to convince waterfowl that the Berkeley pit is not a safe place to hang out. But if they land anyway, thanks to high-end optics, Mariano can now spot and correctly ID them. Then he tailors hazing methods to that particular species. So during the day, he won't try to scare a bird that only flies at night. But if it's a dabbling duck, like a mallard, those get the full-on hazing treatment. The most effective is rifle fire. And it's not even the sound of the rifle, because you can hear that there's you know, sounds of gunfire going off all around us. It's actually the projectile landing near the birds and making a huge splash on the water. <laughs> and, and even the skill involved with that, you know, when we're working, because the miners are the ones that do the rifle hazing, and I tell them, you know, well, there they are, and yeah. we've got a group of divers here. Don't shoot at them. Mariano is not the lone bird guardian of the Berkeley pit. He's training the small army of miners who work at Montana Resources, the active copper mine next door, to do it too. Part of their job now involves occupying the bird shack and patrolling for waterfowl during their regular shifts. So here's the first guy in the morning. This is Rich. Mariano checks in with Rich, an outside foreman at the mine. Or what do you guys, what what would you normally do if I wasn't here? We would talk about what I saw out there since I made it here first this time, and if there was something, Rich would get the rifle out and we would haze him. But since there isn't, 
I ruined this surprise Monday morning observation for him. We circled the pit that day looking for birds, but didn't spot any. So. Which is wonderful, but, but also. boring. Yeah. <laughs> Mariano says so far, this revamped bird hazing program, with its focus on science and on adaptive management, has been really successful. In its first year, for every 100 birds that landed here, 99 were scared away and didn't come back. But the coolest and nerdiest thing of all, now that they're paying so much more attention, they keep finding new species of birds at the pit, ones you would never expect. And I was out there one day, and there's these orange things with curved beaks and a gull with a black head. And I, you know, at first glance, I was like, these, these flew in from Africa. Like, what is this? And turns out the gull was with them, which threw me a little bit. It was a Bonaparte's gull mixed in with probably 40 American avocets, which no one, again, I had to take a video so that people would believe me. There's, there's avocets on the pit. So, yeah, it's it's just like anything. When you take a really hard, closer look at it and you start taking really real data, what you see has just been surprising. <laughs> I'm Nora Sachs. Welcome to Richest Hill, a podcast about one of America's most notorious Superfund sites from Montana Public Radio. This is episode two, For the Benefit of Mankind. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether it's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. At first glance, Butte's mutilated industrial landscape is often written off as an ecological sacrifice zone. Dirty, ugly as sin, and regrettable, but necessary to supply the country with perhaps the most basic necessity of the electrical age, copper. But I've had a chance to take a longer look. Living here for the last nine months, I've seen Butte from high above, flying into the airport, on the ground, in the heart of the National Historic District, and really close up peering at the Berkeley pit through high-powered binoculars. I see it now not just as a toxic pit of death, but also a bewildering source of life. That's the thing about Butte. If you take the time to really look carefully, what you find here will challenge, surprise, and even change you. That's what happened to Dick Gibson. He's a geologist by training, but when he came here in 2003, he started seeing ghosts. I'd be walking around in Butte, just doing whatever I'm doing, and I would learn 3,000 people followed some guy's casket down this very street that I just crossed. Or Kerry Nation, the, the anti-alcohol reformer, came to Butte and waved her hatchet around right here on this spot. Those things freak me out because I've never lived in a place like that. Per square mile, Butte has more history than anywhere. Over the years, he's driven the tourist trolley, guided thousands of visitors on walking tours, written a newspaper column, and published a book on Butte's lost architectural history. Was it Butte that kind of made you a historian? Oh, not kind of. Absolutely, positively. (laughs) When I first landed in Butte, I couldn't get over how different it looked from other places I've been in Montana. It's no old frontier mining town. First, Uptown Butte, the historic district, spills down the side of a steep hill. It's full of stately Victorian-era brick buildings, stone facades, and ornate mansions. But up close, many structures are vacant, tattered, decaying, and a lot are simply not there. The wide streets are like smiles with missing teeth. Uptown filled me with the same eerie sense of faded grandeur as some post-industrial cities back east, like Lowell, Massachusetts, the textile capital. 
clearly something big and important happened in Butte. But just how significant it was didn't sink in until Gibson told me this. Almost certainly somewhere between one-third and one-quarter of all the copper produced on planet Earth from about 1905 to 1917 came from Butte. Not Montana, but Butte. A third of all the copper in the world. Butte had an insanely huge underground cache of not exactly precious, but still very valuable metal. The ways it was extracted and processed have everything to do with why 100 years later, Butte is ground zero for one of the biggest complexes of Superfund sites in the whole country. Complex is in really big, with a lot of different parts, and as in very hard to clean up. I wanted to understand how Butte got here. And to do that, we need to go back in time, like way back. The colossal load of copper that prospectors unearthed here in the late 1800s originated, it's thought, from inside the biggest and brightest stars in the universe. When these supergiants exploded, some of their dust joined a swirling cloud of stellar debris that formed planet Earth billions of years ago. Millions of years later, Earth's tectonic plates collided, forging the Rocky Mountains and forcing molten rock magma, which contained copper and other minerals, close to the surface near Butte. Over time, the magma was heated, dissolved, and crammed into new cracks in the crust. When it eventually cooled down, highly concentrated veins of copper were left. In the earliest days in Butte, there were times, short times, when there were parts of the rock, large parts of the rock, that were as much as 40% copper. My jaw just dropped. 40%? 40% copper. How does that compare to a lot of ore that you might find elsewhere? The Montana Resources Mine presently is mining three-tenths of 1%, and they're economic. As to why it all ended up right here, in this two-by-three-mile spot in southwest Montana, Gibson chalks it up to a cosmic luck of the draw. This incredible concentration of minerals and the unimaginable wealth that would flow from it earned Butte its nickname, the richest hill on Earth. But the discovery of all this buried copper treasure? It was actually a happy accident. Gibson offers to tell me about Butte's origins while we explore uptown on foot. The Butte Hill looks down on a basin that sits a mile above sea level in the northern Rocky Mountains, just west of the Continental Divide. For millennia, this valley and the headwater streams braiding through it were hunting and fishing grounds for the native Salish people. Then, in 1864, the white guys showed up. I say that gold brought them here, silver brought them back, and copper made them rich. Before anyone was getting rich off copper, Butte started out as a gold mining camp. Prospectors found flecks of it in a stream they named Silverbow Creek for the way it sparkled in the sun. They discovered more nearby, up here on the hill, and set up shop. The problem was this gold played out really quite quickly. So the initial uh, gold camp was down to a reported population of 61 in 1874. Butte was on its way to becoming another Bannock or Virginia City, a ghost town. Before the rough and tumble mining camp vanished for good, the prospectors came back. This time they assayed the rocks and found a little more gold, some silver, and a lot of copper. Some of the largest copper deposits in the world. The thing was... Nobody cared about copper in 1875. You made pennies out of it, and that was about it. Silver was the prize they sought, so they stayed. But their timing was kind of outrageous. 
The good news was, though, that all that copper became an economic resource as soon as the late 1870s. The electric light was invented by Edison in 1879. We had telegraph lines. All manner of things were happening that demanded copper. Edison also created a new electrical system to generate and distribute power and light. The market for commercial electricity and the red metal it required exploded. All of a sudden, copper was essential to the modern age, and so was Butte. 3,000 in 1880 was on the way to 20,000 in 1890 and on the way to nearly 100,000 by 1917. So the, the boom wasn't just a boom, it was a surge. It was, it was continuous. The demand for copper, the demand for the other metals that were coming out of Butte too, was just phenomenal and across the board. Almost overnight, the ramshackle mining camp transformed into a thriving industrial metropolis, as modern as any city in America, right in the middle of the Wild West. People were getting rich, and creating an epic environmental mess. But at that time, no one was thinking about how to clean it up. We'll get into those colorful, heady times in a later episode. But by the end of the 19th century, the world was thirsting for Butte's seemingly infinite supply of copper. Which begs the question, how did it all get to the surface? And who got it out? New York has Spider-Man. Gotham City has Batman. But Butte had underground miners. Every day, thousands of men drop into 10,000 miles of hand-carved underground passageways. With picks and dynamite and raw effort, we dig over a mile down in hopes of returning with copper ore to light up our world. That's a clip from a film a local distillery made to promote one of their spirits, Orphan Girl Bourbon Cream Liqueur, named for the Orphan Girl Mine. It brilliantly captures the fierce nostalgia for Butte's underground mining era and its heroes, the underground miners. I get it, because underground mining put Butte on the map and kept it there for almost a century. Historian Dick Gibson again. At the time that these mines were getting down into the one, two, approaching 3,000 foot level in the 19-teens, um, they were among the deepest mines in the world. And ultimately, they created pretty close to 10,000 miles of underground tunnels. That sounds like a Butte hype or a Butte uh, brag, but it's pretty well true. Which means the earth beneath our feet isn't exactly terra firma. It's more like Swiss cheese or honeycomb, and it's all within a five square mile radius above ground. That fact alone is kind of boggling because you don't have any sense of that on the surface other than where these head frames are. There's only about 15 of them left, but in the heyday, there were over 300 mines that had names. Head frames are the black triangular towers made of steel. They look like distant cousins of the oil derrick. They loom all over the hill, and some are 200 feet tall. We can see three from where we're standing, at the intersection of Copper and Wyoming streets. Each one of these uh, head frames is essentially the, the linchpin of a pulley system uh, down which the, the cables went that carried the men, the mules, and brought the ore up out of the mines. It all sounds simple enough, but looking up at those head frames, I try to imagine just how Herculean, and frankly bananas, the whole endeavor must have been. Take the mules. Before electric rail was invented, the animals were blindfolded, bound, stuffed into a tiny cage, and lowered deep into the bowels of the earth. Then they hauled heavy ore carts back and forth until they eventually went blind and were literally worked to death. Obviously, underground mining wasn't for snowflakes. So was it really as romantic as the scene in the Orphan Girl film 
where at the ring of a bell, a brave young miner descends into the city beneath the city to fulfill his destiny? Maybe, maybe not. All right, rookie, we got room for one more. Put the rock in the box. Tap her light. Anyone who experienced Butte's earliest and gnarliest mining days in the 1800s is underground now, six feet under. And that entire underworld is gone too, in time and space. The mines were flooded with groundwater the same time the Berkeley pit started to fill. So this vital part of Butte and America's industrial past is submerged, sealed off forever. But a handful of guys who literally carved their living and identity out of the richest hill are still alive and kicking. Through their eyes, Butte looks like an industrial wonder of the world, one they helped build with their own two hands. I was doing the mining. There wouldn't have been no ropemen, there wouldn't have been no pipemen, there wouldn't have been no mortarmen, there would have been nothing if they didn't have the contract miner. That's Al Beavis, one of Butte's old school underground miners. We'll chat with him right after this short break. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether it's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at SierraNevada.com. When I started asking around for who I should talk to about what life underground was really like, one name came up time and again. My name's Al Beavis. Walkerville, Montana. I was born two blocks south of the house we're sitting in now, May 27th, 1931. So how old does that make you? That makes me 87 and a half. To get to Walkerville, you pass through Butte and keep heading straight up the hill. Today it's a sleepy hamlet that seems to just sit quietly on top of the world, but it's home to some of the oldest mines in the area. Mining runs in Al's blood. His father immigrated from England to work in Butte's mines in the early 1900s. He was supposed to come over in the Titanic, but he missed it. He got the next boat. No way. <laughs> or I wouldn't be. <laughs> we wouldn't be here. I'll tell you, my life has been hectic. <laughs> Al's dad died young from a heart attack while at the mine. His family grew up poor during the Depression. But Al says by age five, he knew where he belonged. And I made it into a sophomore year in high school, and then I had to get out of there. I... I knew what my future held for me. I knew what I wanted to do, and that was be an underground miner. 17 and too young to get a job, Al faked his age, waited in line for 18 days in the dead of winter, and finally got hired digging ditches at the mile-high, mile-deep Mountain Con Mine. When I asked him what that first day working 4,000 feet below ground in the dark was like, the question didn't seem to compute. I just uh, climatized myself to it. I... There was nothing different for me. I was just underground. It wouldn't have mattered if it was six feet or 6,000 feet. It, no, I just, I was adjusted from the time I went in and changed my clothes till I went on the cage and caught it and went down. It's no different for me than being on surface as it was underground. In fact, I think I enjoyed underground more than surface. He's short, about 5'5", five five, and he says in his peak, he probably weighed 130 pounds soaking wet, but he was strong. Soon, he became a contract miner, hustling and getting paid for the amount of work he could finish in a shift, rather than a flat day's pay. Or as he puts it, No money, no funny, no dough, no go. You know, I had a family. I raised five kids underground. And uh, 
Now, I was never worried about the money. I wasn't interested in the money, and I was, learn I was interested in the learning process. I, like I said, I wanted to know everything there was about a mine. As an underground miner, Al was expected to do everything, from laying timber, to mucking ore, to drilling holes, to blasting rock with dynamite, all with serious skill and finesse. He was so dedicated to his job, he even skipped his mother-in-law's funeral so he wouldn't miss his shift. I didn't like it. I loved it. Sometimes the tougher it got, the better I liked it. Why's that? I don't know. It's just seeing that if I could accomplish the goal to get this done. Underground mining was unforgiving, and Al and his colleagues were constantly battling tough conditions. Some mines were freezing cold, others boiling hot, and even with safety precautions, Al had some really close calls. One time, he saw some rock dribbling out of the back of a tunnel. Seconds later, the whole roof collapsed in. He and his men escaped just in time and went back to work the next day. Another time, he almost got buried alive. I went to the hospital on that one. You did? Yes, it, uh, I got hit in the head with a rock. Oh, no. <laughs> but it didn't do any damage to my head. My head must have been harder than the rock, you know. <laughs> anyway, it took my helmet, my mine helmet, and cut it in half. It busted, the, and that's something that's, you know, I couldn't believe that. Anyway, they took that helmet and they stuck it in the boss's office in the, in the window to show everybody what happens, I guess, when you've got a hard head. <laughs> he says those accidents made him a little claustrophobic. And though thousands of Butte miners perished in the mines before him, he never thought about it as a dangerous profession. You know, I think about it today and I think, geez, maybe that's why my kids didn't want to be miners. Mm. You know, they... They didn't want nothing to do with underground mining. Al's 20 years underground spanned the late 1940s to the late 1960s, several decades after the peak of Butte's mining boom. But he says after World War II ended and the rebuilding efforts began, as a miner... You know, you felt that you were contributing something toward the country at that time, you know, because nobody else could do it. Sometimes he'll still look at a piece of copper pipe and think, this could have come from Butte. You know, it's an art for one thing. It's about getting a product out that's for future uses, you know, that's going to be used for the benefit of mankind. You know, you're going to have copper in just about everything that you use. You know, you're, anything you can think of has got copper, so it's, you know, it's an important part of the, our life, and it has been since God knows when. you got to have it. What would you do without copper? dark drifts deep underground, highly skilled and motivated miners like Al Beavis called the shots, but they needed some assistance above ground. Remember those head frames I mentioned? Those tall steel towers held up the giant cables that lowered men and equipment down into the mine shafts and hauled the rock in the box, the copper ore, up to the surface. But around Butte, most of the old mine yards are fenced off. And inside them, the head frames and old machines stand still and silent, like dinosaurs in a forgotten museum. All except one. On a sunny afternoon last fall, Larry Hoffman escorts me through the steward mine yard's usually shackled gates, past the head frame, and into a cavernous dark building. Put some more light in here. Of course, I guess you really don't need a lot of light for radio. <laughs> Generally not. Oh my gosh. It like takes up the whole room. Oh yeah. 
We're facing a massive contraption. That's all piston, cylinders, cranks, dials. If you've ever seen a steam locomotive, this is like a steam locomotive that doesn't go anywhere. This would be the drive wheel, and those would be the drive cylinders there. But where the wheels would be, there are huge drums wound with thick cables. So this is a hoisting engine from the uh, earliest days of early days of Butte. This is probably from the 1880s or early 1890s. It was originally steam powered and now we run it on compressed air. Back in the day, these machines powered the giant cable and pulley systems. But this one has been out of a job since the mine shut down in the late 1970s, just waiting for someone like Hoffman, a history buff and a mining engineer with silver hair and a warm smile to come along. Last year, with the county's blessing, he cleaned out a lot of pitching crap, fixed a few leaks. Incredibly, the engine fired right up, and today he's kindly offered to get it going again. Are you ready for some noise? Yeah, let's do it. Can you tell me what you're about to do, though? I'm going to go start the air compressor outside, okay. and it'll take a little while to build up pressure. Okay. And then, uh, actually, Louis can get up and run it for you. There are old timers, and then there's Louis Lusheen. Today, he's sporting aviators, a baseball cap, and chewing on hard candy. At 93 years old, he's the last living hoisting engineer in town. He started hoisting in 1949 and never planned to stop. Well, I just liked running them, and each one was different, and I run practically all of them in Butte. Lusheen thought he'd never see one of these engines again, let alone operate one. But how did you feel pulling that throttle again last year? How did that make oh, you feel? Like I was reborn. <laughs> As Hoffman starts the compressor, Louis spryly climbs up onto a platform perched over the belly of the Iron Beast. He takes the helm at a cluster of levers and controls that are as tall as he is, and waits for Hoffman to ring a bell, signaling whether to raise the cage up or lower it down. Now, see, three bells he gives me, so I got him ringing up. So this is the throttle. I'm giving it air. Okay. Slowly but surely, at Louis's command, the drum spins, a cable unspools and the cage hanging from the head frame outside starts to rise a few feet off the ground and dance in midair. All the way back, Louie. All the way back. Release the brake. Just release it. Yeah, you're out of air. So now he's got the down signal, so he's just going to release the brake. You might have to wait for pressure, Louie. With a bump, the cage touches safely back down to earth. It takes a little getting used to. I'm day off and practice all day long. Yeah, yeah well, we'll get you back in shape yet, boy. <laughs> Louis still operates the 1500 horsepower engine with calm and confidence. Critical qualities for an engineer, because production was defined by how fast these hoisting engines ran and how much ore, materials, and men they hauled. I mean, every time you get a man on them cages, here's your responsibility. It's like a pilot in an airplane. Anybody who's got in that airplane, then he's flying. He's got to get them down. If that plane crashes, they're gone. Same thing with these. No one ever died on Louis's watch. But one time, at 2 a.m., they were lowering several decks of timber over at the Emma mine. And the cable broke, but there was nobody on it. And that thing fell all the way to the bottom and smashed. And the bottom deck was smashed so bad that you could almost put it in your lunch bucket. How did you handle the stress of that position? Well, it never bothered me. As long as he was doing everything right, he never had this stress. A lot of them had this stress when they started, and they couldn't finish. They had to quit. 
His biggest challenge was memorizing the Morse code-like system of bell signals that allowed the engineers to communicate with the men working thousands of feet underground. That's real slow. And when they ring them, they ring them fast. They go, and you got to get it. It wasn't easy. He trained an hour a day for months on end. Finally, he told his mother, I'm going to quit today. It's going to be my last day. I says, I can't understand them bells, and I'll never learn them. And then, when and then one, one morning I got up, and the bells come right to me. I understood every single one of them. You just woke up one and day, and you understood. Up, and I never had no trouble. And I, the day after that, I loved this job. I loved it right to, to the last day I put in. In its lifetime, the Steward Mine produced about a million pounds of copper. Lucien ran the hoisting engine there for 12 years, right until it shut down. It was one of the last working underground mines in Butte. It broke my heart. <laughs> I felt bad, because I really, I really enjoyed it. Worked with all a bunch of nice guys. And if I had to do it over again, I would. That day in October, I got to witness a small miracle and a big part of Butte's heritage brought back to life. It's one and only functioning hoisting engine operated by its original engineer. But while Louis Lucien was the master of the mine in his day, he still had to serve somebody. For the better part of the 20th century, Butte's copper mines were owned by a singular entity. They didn't do bad. I figured they'd run the state of Montana. Lucien is referring to the Anaconda Copper Mining Company. He and a lot of other old miners told stories about smuggling lumber, nails, or copper pipe home from work. Sometimes the company boss would call them out. He says, you're stealing. I said, no, I'm not stealing. He said, why ain't you stealing? You're taking that board out of the mine yard and taking it home. I said, Anaconda owns the safe state of Montana. All I'm doing is moving it around in the yard. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, Every, yeah. Everybody knew how the oh. game was played. <laughs> That game was about much more than pulling a fast one on your boss. Because Anaconda, or simply the company as it was known, was no mom and pop mining shop. For a time, it was one of the biggest and most powerful mining companies on the planet. And Butte, Montana was its world headquarters. You know that old joke that says when mining companies get rich, all miners get is the shaft? Next time on Richest Hill, we'll meet the company's founders, Butte's original copper kings and look at how the richest hill on earth became the Gibraltar of the American Labor Union movement. I'll see you next time you come up, if the good Lord's willing, and I'm looking down at the grass and not up at the roots. Richest Hill is a production of Montana Public Radio. Nora Sachs is our host and reporter. I'm Nick Mott, our producer. Eric Whitney is our executive producer. Josh Burnham is our digital editor. Our theme music is by Dublin Gulch. Other original music composed and performed by Jonas Benetta and Oren Pearson. Special thanks to Mark Mariano, Dick Gibson, Al Beavis, Louis Lusheen, Larry Hoffman, Headframe Spirits, the World Museum of Mining, and NPR's Story Lab. Mm-hmm.